Well, I was trying to think of how many times I've said, this is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I came to the revelation, my favorite book of the Bible is the one I'm studying at that particular time. But this one is always one I go back to. And I, I just, I love it. I love the, I love what it says. I love the, the, almost the emotion of it. And it's the book of Philippians. And it's one of the books that Paul wrote as one of his letters to the different churches, as we see that they're often called epistles, letters to the different churches. And usually when, when Paul wrote most of his letters, he starts out almost in the first verse or the second verse by saying something like, I, Paul, an apostle, write such and such. And then he'll encourage them, bless them, accept. But he almost always identifies himself as apostle. So it's as if an apostle, a leader, an authority in that church, someone who has an authority to speak into that church to a certain degree, is writing to the church to instruct them sometimes. Sometimes there's some, some not-so-gentle rebukes in his letters. He, his words of discipline, words of teaching, all of those things in his letters. The letter of Philippians is different. It's different. The letter of Philippians is written more like a friend writing to another friend. Yes, there's teaching. Yes, there's instruction. Yes, there's encouragement. But it's like we're getting a glimpse, you know, when I sometimes think of the Apostle Paul, and sometimes it probably comes from movies I've seen more than the Scripture, but I sometimes think of this sort of cranky old guy that that God got a hold of and is using. Because he seems like he's always gently disciplining his churches. But in Philippians, we get to see, I think, this, the love, the kindness, the compassion of Paul. And we also get to see what it looks like for somebody who is totally, totally sold out to Jesus. Someone who, no matter what's going on, joy, rejoicing, confidence, hope. And it's, a, like it's, a, it's like it's a letter that he's writing to, to the, the church in Philippians, but also to us, a letter that's saying, you know what, we all have problems. Life is difficult. It's like he's giving us a guide here just to ordinary lives and how we live them. And in that guide, he's giving us the information, the testimony that when we're facing problems, the normal problems of life, that there is a victory that a Christian can appropriate in Jesus Christ, no matter what. It almost reminds me clearly of our mission statement as a church, to help people discover and experience the abundant life in Christ. That abundant life in Christ does not depend on your circumstances. And this is the message that Paul is saying in this, this letter to this church, this, this letter from one friend to another. He's saying, you know what? There is a way that we can appropriate Jesus Christ into our lives, and he will help us through whatever storm, whatever trouble, whatever trial we're going through. He will always help us. He's always there. He is faithful no matter what. And as we look through the book, there isn't really like a major theme as such. Sometimes you look up a book, a Bible, and it says the major theme is thus and this. And there is 
a lot of major themes. But this one, there's kind of a lot of little themes. But I think one of the things, if I was going to give it a recurring message, is joy and rejoicing. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. The joy of the Lord. Count it all joy. Paul's message of joy is continuously coming forth. And he's, he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, not because they got a whole lot of doctrinal problems going on, not because they got some crazy people causing problems in the church necessarily. There's just normal stuff going on, you know, normal stuff like Christians not always getting along with other Christians. Some people coming in with not, not totally terrible doctrine, but it's kind of getting you off track a little bit. He's writing it to encourage them, and he's writing them and, and trying to instruct them how to live victoriously and with joy in the midst of troubles of life. Maybe that's why I like this book so much. We all have troubles in our lives almost every day. And if we're not careful and we start focusing on the troubles or the circumstance, we can lose our joy real quick. And all of a sudden, rejoicing is like a foreign concept. How am I supposed to rejoice in the midst of this fill-in-the-blank? Well, the reality should be, how can I not rejoice in the midst of this? So it's a letter that, that is to encourage, um, instruct, and lead us to that place where we continually can walk in joy. And sometimes when we say those things, like, you know, as, a, as you're counseling with someone or sharing with someone, and they're in the midst of it, and you're, you're telling them, hey, come on, hang in there. You'll be great. God is good. And, and we hear all that stuff from somebody, and it's all well-meaning, but they look at you or they look at me and say, yeah, that, you can say all that. You're not going through it. Sounds good, but you haven't walked in where I'm walking right now. And one of the things that gives Paul's letter to the Philippians so much credibility is he is writing it from prison. He is imprisoned in Rome, and he's writing this letter. And as we look at it, he's not only imprisoned in Rome, and, and granted, it's not the worst of prisons. It's a place he's renting, and they're allowing him to rent it. But he's 24-7 chained to a Roman guard. And he's waiting to face Caesar, Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, he was not only hostile to Christians, he was brutal. And it got worse and worse and worse as the church grew. He literally would tar Christians and put them on a post and light them on fire and use it for light. And Paul is sitting in this situation. So he's writing this letter about joy and rejoicing. And again, I say rejoice, and that's where he's at. That brings some credibility. Brings more hope, more encouragement. His life is truly in the hands of Nero when he gets before him to plead his case not knowing how it's going to turn out. And yet he writes this letter to the Philippians. It's filled with affection and all kinds of expressions of praise and confidence and rejoicing. That's why I think it's so special. So I want to look at this letter to the Philippians, and it's going to be something we're going to do in the next few weeks also. But to do that, I want to give us some context. So if you have your Bibles... I want you to turn back to the book of Acts. And there's not going to be a lot of scriptures from this book of Acts, chapter 16, up on the screen. So if you have a pencil or pen and you didn't bring a Bible, or a phone, or an iPad, or a whatever else, Acts chapter 16 is where I'm going to be at. Philippi is in Europe. 
The gospel has not gone there. Now, there's a few Jewish people in Philippi, and I'll expound on that in just a minute, but not many the way it looks. And we are actually on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul went on three different missionary journeys, and it's his second missionary journey. And in the book of Acts, chapter 16, it talks about Paul on this journey, on this trip, and his travels. And it's interesting to see, if you remember a couple weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I can't remember, I talked about, you know, planting a church, and how a church plant is really a supernatural thing no matter what, but sometimes it takes a real supernatural event, and, and the church in Philippi is one of those things. This is a God thing. I'm going to turn my back to you a little bit, and as we look at this map, go ahead and go up to the map. I know a lot of you can't see it very well. See the little pointer, maybe? Way over here. His second journey is the blue one. Okay? And he's, let's see, I think that's wrong. It's the yellow one. There we go. It's the yellow one, and it started here, and he worked his way up. And as you read this, and I'm going to just read a few verses, it talks about he went through the Phrygian region, you can see over there. And he said, it says he went in the, through the Galatian region. That's this big area over here. And it tells us he was trying to go up to this Bithynia region up here. And there you see the word Asia. And I point that out because it says he wanted to go there, but God wouldn't let him. God wouldn't let him. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go there. And as you see, he'd been through there on his first missionary journey, but... He wouldn't let him go there. So it tells us he got up to this Mysia, and he's still trying to go into Asia. God won't let him. He wanted to go to Bithynia. God wouldn't let him. So he goes over to this city called Troas. And he's at Troas, and he gets a vision. And you may have heard of it called the Macedonian vision. In his vision, a man from Macedonia, Macedonia is this region over here, And it is in Europe. And Paul gets this vision, and the vision is pretty simple. It's a vision of a man, a Macedonian man, standing before Paul and appealing to Paul, saying simply this, come over to Macedonia to help us. Well, Paul had a heart to go there, and he responded. So he went from Troas... And he went to, there's Philippi. And Philippi, again, in God's perfect plan, Philippi is a critically important city in this territory of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia itself was was a Roman colony. So Philippi would have been in this Roman colony, and it's one of the very important cities. And one of the reasons it's so important is it was on this major road that people would travel. So again, it's like, okay, God's got a plan. He plants this church in Philippi. How does he do it? A vision to Paul calls him into Macedonia. And then he goes to Macedonia. And he's there in Philippi, this major city, a key city, with lots of travelers coming and going through there. What a great place to spread the gospel. It says he's in Philippi, And it's the Sabbath comes around. The Sabbath then was a Saturday. So here it is, a Saturday, and it tells us in Acts chapter 16, Paul went out of the city gate, 
near a river because he expected to find people praying there. Interesting. For a couple of reasons. One, it gives us a picture of how few Jews there were probably in Philippi. The Jewish people, the Jewish religion at that time had kind of a, I would call it a rule, if you want to call it that, regulation. But if wherever there were ten Jewish men, you were required to establish a synagogue. Well, in Philippi, there evidently wasn't even ten Jewish men because there was no synagogue. Therefore, Paul knew, I suppose it was a general cultural thing, that if there were any Jews, they would go outside the city and find a place to pray. And it tells us when he goes outside the city gate, he goes down near this river, and sure enough, there's a few believers. And it tells us this. He found this group of women praying. Specifically, a group of women praying. Can God use some women to plant a church? I thought he was way more sexist than that. God comes, and there's this one lady there, her name is Lydia. And Lydia, it tells you she's a maker of purple cloth, the kind of cloth you would dye and work, and you would sell it to royalty or or people of wealth, people of influence. It seems like it's one way that God would say through Paul, this Lydia has a position of some influence. She might rub some shoulders with some pretty important people. And it says, as he meets with these group of women praying, he starts to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it tells us in Acts chapter 16, they were believers in God. Meaning, these women were Jewish women. They believed in God, but not Jesus Christ. They didn't know about Jesus. This is the establishment of the first church in Europe, which changed the world. And he used a group of women, and in particular, a lady named Lydia. And Lydia, it says, accepted the gospel message, and her, and she was baptized. And then she says, Paul, you got to come to my house. And Paul wasn't traveling alone. It looks like there was probably four people here. It looks like there was Paul, obviously, Timothy, who it tells us he had decided he wanted to have along in the first part of the chapter. And we know because of what happens soon, Silas was there. And when Paul is writing this, he keeps referring to us. So it looks like Paul, Silas, and in the book of Acts being written by Luke, Luke is saying us. So it looks like those four were probably there. And this church gets started, the very first church in all of Europe, gets started in the home of a lady named Lydia who must have been an amazing lady because her name is in the Bible and 2,000-some years later, we're still talking about her. And the church was birthed. As they continued to preach and teach, it was causing quite a bit of excitement, a little bit of a stir in the community. People were believing. And then there's, we see more than once in the Scriptures, it irritated a few people. Anybody notice that when you start sharing the Gospel of Jesus and you talk about Jesus and you actually use His name people get a little irritated. Nobody's experienced that? I would dare to say if you haven't experienced that, you haven't shared Jesus with many people yet. We're to be an irritant with love. The truth will irritate just enough to hopefully draw them to Christ. Well, in this case, it 
it really was irritating one particular little slave girl who had a spirit of divination. A spirit of divination. That's an evil spirit. A medium, if you would. Spirits of divination, mediums, spiritists, they still exist today. Don't go to one. It's evil. Don't tell me, but they knew something about me. Of course they did. It's an evil spirit. But this evil spirit was troubling Paul because this evil spirit kept saying, these men, and notice it speaks the truth. These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming you to you the way of salvation. An evil spirit proclaiming truth. And I don't know what got under Paul's skin, but it says it irritated him. So after a few days, he just got sick and tired of it, and he cast the spirit out in the name of Jesus. You spirit of divination, leave this girl. And it did. The problem was she was a slave girl, and she was making a whole lot of money for her owners. So they got upset. They took Paul and Silas to the magistrates, and they beat him with rods and threw him in prison. And this is where the story gets more exciting. It says Paul and Silas are in prison. They've been beaten with rods. They're bloodied, wounded. And it says their feet are in stocks. They're locked in this prison. So what do they do? Well, Paul practiced what he preached. He started praying and rejoicing and singing to God in prison with their backs bloodied and wounded and their feet in stocks. And it says a couple interesting things in Acts chapter 16. You can miss it almost if you just read through it. It says, they were praying and singing, and everyone in the prison was listening. He's preaching in music, preaching in his prayers. He's preaching. Everyone's listening. And you know who was listening especially? God. And an earthquake came. And it says, the whole jail shook. And the doors were opened and the chains fell off. I don't want to take this too far, but God, to me, that is such a picture of the power of prayer, praise, and worship. You need doors opened in your life? Pray, praise, give thanks, rejoice. You're bound in chains? Pray, praise, give thanks, rejoice. There is power in it. And the doors were opened, and the chains fell off, and the prison guard was really, really nervous. Because if you had a prisoner, and this is important to remember when we think of Paul being in jail, chained to a Roman guard, if you have a prisoner, and you're guarding prisoners, and the prisoners get away, you get to die. So this guard is so rattled because of what happened, it says he's taking his sword and he's going to kill himself. And Paul says, hey, wait a minute, we're all still here. The doors are open, the chains are gone, but we're still here. And the impact that the earthquake had, the doors opening and the chains falling off, probably affected this guy a lot. But I think the groundwork had already been laid in this guard's heart because he'd been hearing them pray to God praising God, singing and worshiping God while they're in stocks and in prisons. And this, this guard's heart, I believe, was already being softened and melting. And his life was spared because Paul said, hey, we're still here. 
And what was his response? He says, Sirs, what must I do to believe? What must I do to believe? Paul's answer, simple and sweet. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe. Remember, that's not just mental assent. That's believing and acting upon what you believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. What's that mean? Believe that He is who He said He was, the Son of God who came to earth. Believe that He died on a cross. Believe that He was buried and raised again on the third day and ascended to the Father, seated at His right hand right now, praying for Paul and Silas and this guard. That's what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Not just, oh yeah, there was a Jesus. No, mental assent doesn't cut it. We need to believe with our heart. Believe enough to act upon it. You know, if, if you were on a roof of a 10-story building and, and I was a really honest, trustworthy person and I said, do you believe me when I tell you something? You go, oh yeah. I said, good, jump, you won't get hurt. Huh, now we got a moment of crisis. Do you really believe me? Or was it just mental assent? And that's what it is when we read the word believe in the Bible. Believe to the place that we will act upon what we say we were believing. Paul and Silas are released, but, oh, by the way, the, ba- the jailer and his whole family believed and got baptized. He took them home and cleaned them up, cleaned their wounds, and is going to let them go. And he says, Paul says, we aren't going anywhere. They hauled us in here without a trial. It wasn't right. We're Roman citizens. You tell the magistrates to come and apologize, and then they can let us out. So they did. And they said, please leave. And it says they went back to Lydia's house. They encouraged the believers. And then they left the city. And they traveled on to different parts of Europe, down to Corinth, Berea, other places. But the church in Philippi was established. And this church had a special place in their heart for Paul and vice versa. We see that in in different places in Scripture. We see when Paul was ministering in Thessalonica, a church sent an offering to him, a financial offering to support his ministry, the church in Philippi. When he was in Corinth, ministering to the church in Corinth, a church sent a financial offering to support his ministry, the church in Philippi. And when Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, a man by the name of Epaphroditus had just showed up with another offering to support him while he's in prison. He was renting his home where he was under house arrest. This church had a vision for spreading the gospel. This church had a vision for the Apostle Paul. And they jumped on board and started supporting him right away. They didn't go, hey, go out and prove yourself, then maybe we'll think about it. No, the Lord spoke to their heart And they did. No wonder there's this tenderness to this letter of a friend to a friend that we see in the book of Philippians. The church was planted. That's a whole lot of background towards or for the church in Philippi that brings us to the letter that he wrote that we call the book of Philippians. So remember, he's in prison, chained to a soldier, and he's waiting to go before Nero, And yet, this letter is filled with joy, filled with encouragement. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. In chapter 1, 
If you could summarize it is this. Christ Jesus is our life. As a Christian, I think that's the primary message Paul is saying. He's our life. This is where Paul is declaring, rejoice. And again, I'd say rejoice. And there's a verse that I think that says it most clearly, and probably oftentimes we, get, we misinterpret it or misuse it. And it's in verse 21 of chapter 1. It says, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Anybody ever heard that verse before? Everybody ever, anybody ever said that verse before? And when you've said it, you know what you're usually, what's going on in your heart and your mind? I've had it with this crap. I'd rather die and go to heaven. Good old Christian frustration comes out. We're sick and tired. Let's just escape. Christian escapism. So we take that verse and say, to live is Christ. Yeah, that's good. But to die is gain. I'm ready. Take me home. And I know a whole lot of you in here have said that. I've said that. This stinks. Take me home now. I might have just said that this week when a certain Supreme Court decision came out. But you know what? That's not what Paul's telling here at all. That's not what he's saying at all. That's not his heart at all here. And this is what really excites me about Philippians and this letter to the Philippians. Is to understand, it's like, this is not a man who's crying out because he's fed up with life. Even though he's in prison. Facing Nero in the future. It's not about Christian escapism. Being fed up. It's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, here's two choices. And they're both so doggone good, I don't know which one to pick. To live is Christ. What does that mean? But to die is gain. What does that mean? Well, to die is gain means we are going to go to heaven and we're going to spend eternity in the presence of God. Wow, that's cool. It doesn't get much better than that. But to live is Christ. To live is Christ. What does that mean? That means to live as a Christian and then experience Christ in your life. To experience the living God in you. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in you. You know, from Paul's perspective, and this should be our perspective, life is an exciting adventure filled with ups and downs. But it's an adventure. If we can step back and say, okay, God, what are we doing? What are you doing? Paul's sitting there saying, I'm in prison. But it was prophesied he was going to go to Rome. I don't know if he was looking forward to being in prison and chained to a guard 24-7. But he is there. And we could look at that and say, he missed God. This can't be from God. This is not good. This is bad. Happens in your lives and my life all the time. A circumstance or a situation arises and we go over, this cannot be God because I don't like it. This cannot be God because it's painful. This cannot be God because it scares me. I don't like it. And I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't like it either. Paul's saying, it's an adventure. It's exciting. Christ lives in me and He's doing something. 
Not just making me miserable. I got to have an attitude adjustment. More than that, Paul isn't fed up, he's not discouraged. And he is not frustrated by his circumstances. Let's look at the, the context of this verse. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14 in, Act, in Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to give you the Nelson paraphrase. It's inspired. <laughs> Maybe. So here's what he says. Now I want you to know, brothers, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What's his circumstances? He's in prison, chained to a Roman praetorian guard, the elite, the most brilliant, the most talented, the strongest, the most gifted guards in all the Roman armies. And he says, don't worry about it. It's turned out for the progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, they have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. That's the context of to live in is Christ but to die is gain. What he's basically saying is, don't worry about it, guys. I'm in jail. You heard about it. Don't worry about it. You hear them in prison. Don't listen to that. That's not a big deal. That's not the important message here. My imprisonment has advanced the gospel in Rome like never before. Wait a minute. You're trying to tell me that, Paul, you going to prison is an evangelistic outreach program? Your pain, your suffering, your circumstance could be an evangelistic outreach program? I didn't ask permission. Glenn, do I have permission? Do you think pancreatic liver cancer is an evangelistic outreach program? Talk to Karen and Glenn for just a few minutes and you're going to discover they're sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people they'd have never got to share with before. And I can attest to the fact with a boldness and a compassion and a love that you can't hardly resist. Maybe it's part of God's plan. Paul is sitting there saying, don't worry about me being in prison. It's part of his plan. This is exciting and it's an adventure. I don't think it was always comfortable. I don't think it's where he wanted to be. And most of the time, that's where we find ourselves when God wants to use us the most. Isn't that amazing? Something like when we are weak, He is strong. He will receive the glory and the honor, not me or you. He says, I'm not discouraged. I'm rejoicing. The Christians in Rome are stirred up. They're preaching the gospel all over the city. And then he goes on in the verses I haven't read yet, and you can look at the rest of them, but he says, you know, there are some people out there, they're sharing the gospel, but boy, their motives are bad, bad, bad. There's some of them out there, they're glad I'm in prison so they can go out there and get some more notches in their belt. They're sharing the gospel, but it's out of selfish pride and ambition. Matter of fact, some of them are out there sharing the gospel just because they think it's going to drive me crazy. Read it. It's something like that. You know what he says, though? I don't care. Don't worry about it. 
The gospel is going forth. I don't care what their motives are. God is going to use it for His glory, for His honor. So he's sitting in jail and basically saying, guys, God's ways are not our ways. Life is an adventure and it's experience that we need to look forward to. It is so doggone exciting. I can't wait to see what he's going to do next. Therefore, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This is so amazing watching God work in me and through me that I'm not sure whether I want to stay here and let Him do that or I want to go over here and go to heaven. I don't know because they're both so unbelievably desirable. They're exciting. Boy, that's a mindset that we need. And Paul is writing this letter to encourage you and me as well as the church in Philippi that you know what? There is a way we can appropriate Jesus into our lives that we can get through the worst of the worst. And he'll use it for his glory. He'll use it for his honor. In verse 13 he said, Christ has become well known to the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now think about this. Do you think Paul had any idea how he was going to evangelize Rome? He probably thought he was going to do it like he did it everywhere else. Go into the city. If there's a synagogue, I'm going to go find it. And then I'm going to preach Jesus. Then they're going to throw rocks at me, beat me, stone me, and throw me out of the city. But I'm going to preach the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. Something like that. Or do you think he sat out there and said, you know, I'm on this boat headed to Rome. I think what I'll do is get locked in a hundred house arrest, get a Praetorian guard, the elite of the elite, and the, their, their job was to protect Caesar. There was 10,000 of them. They were the best of the best. I'm going to get one of them chained to me 24-7 for probably about two years, and that's how I'm going to evangelize. Nah, probably didn't. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts aren't our thoughts. They're better. Think about this. Who are the Praetorian Guard? They're the smartest, the strongest, they're the best of the best. And they're chained to him 24-7 on six-hour cycles. Talk about getting a chance to evangelize. That's as good as having the Mormons come to you. Chained to you for six hours. What are they going to hear? They're going to hear Paul talking about Jesus. They're going, to, they're going to see him and hear him writing letters. And then they're going to go home. And they're going to tell you, ought to see this guy that I'm guarding. He is fulfilled with hope, so filled with joy, and he keeps talking about Jesus. I think we need to check this out. And they get saved. Next guy, chained to him six hours every day. Over and over and over and over. And so what does he say? The whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else knows about me and Jesus. Pretty great plan. Maybe some of the best, most influential soldiers in all of Rome are spreading the news about Jesus, about God. And Paul's saying, to me to live is Christ. This is crazy. This is exciting. It's not what I expected, but it's amazing what God is doing. I can hardly wait to see what he's going to do next. I don't know which is better, to live or to die. That's what Paul meant. And that's the message it should be for each one of us. How did he do this? How could he be like this? How could he think like this? You know, most of us know, I hope, that Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. Amen? Most of us get that. But you know, part of the reason he did that, yes, to forgive our sins, 
but that he might live in us and then manifest himself through us. And he says, man, if my church gets that, if they understand that I live in them, I have a plan, they might think it's crazy, but it'll be exciting. It'll be an adventure. I have a plan that I can live through them. That's what Paul understood. Paul's words to us in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectations and hope. And I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul understood a secret. He had discovered this secret. He was experiencing the secret that God intends for every single human being. Don't know the secret? God indwelling in us. Paul understood that. God indwelling in him. God indwells in you and me. He understood that. He could therefore experience the abundant life in Christ because he understood it. For us as a church, for you and me as believers, to experience the abundant life in Christ, we need to understand that the living God, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, lives in us. And he wants to do things through us as well as in us. And we won't understand it a lot, but it's true. Paul understood, this is probably the most important thing I got to say today, he understood that no human life is complete without God in it. It doesn't matter how successful, how wealthy, how whatever. No human life is complete without God in it. And that's how come Paul was able to live his life to the fullest. To live as Christ. Which leads to an obvious question. Is Christ, is God in your life? Does the living Spirit of God live and dwell in you? Is the potential in you and in me to discover and experience the abundant life in Jesus? Unless you're saved, it's not there. But once the living God indwells you by His Spirit, it's there. You're complete. He will refine and He will advance each one of us to more of a Christ-likeness as we live out our lives in obedience to the Holy Spirit but it is complete. And as we've said more than once today, that happens simply by accepting the reality that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He came and lived a sinless life on earth and He died in my place, in your place on the cross because the penalty for sin was death. Someone had to die. The only acceptable sacrifice was a sinless man and He died on our behalf. And we know He was a worthy sacrifice because He was raised from the dead. 
Jesus was accepted by the Father. That sacrifice was sufficient. That when God looks at me, as Bob brought this out last week so clearly and passionately, your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus Christ. God the Father looks at you and He looks at me and He sees this cloak of righteousness that's Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus was shed. That's how you receive it. That's how you become complete. Your life feels empty. There's the solution. You feel hopeless. There's the solution. You don't know how you're going to get through whatever you're facing. There's the solution. He promises. He's faithful. He'll always be there. He'll never ever abandon you. His love for you will never ever change. You can't earn it. You can't earn it. And once you're His child, you can't even make Him love you less. I like that. Can't even make Him love you less. Your relationship can get a little strained, but He loves you nonetheless. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that You would help us by Your Holy Spirit to understand what Paul understood, not just in our head, but in our heart. God, that, that we would know and understand as best we can with a natural mind, renewed by Your Holy Spirit, that the living Spirit, Your living Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, lives and dwells in each one of us. And God, it's not there just to make us feel good, but it's to teach us, to guide us, to direct us, to release Your power through us, Your love through us. God, I pray that You would help us to understand and grasp that truth, that reality. I pray, God, that there would be no one here that would leave this place incomplete because they don't know Jesus. Holy Spirit, woo them, draw them, extend grace to receive you. If that's you, just, just pray and ask, God, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior and I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I surrender my life to you. I made a mess of it, but I surrender it to you just as I am. And when we say that prayer, God, I thank you that you receive us. That our sins are washed away. You're never going to hold them against us ever again. And that's why we can stand boldly before your throne of grace and cry out to you as our Father. So I pray, Lord, this morning you would bless each one here. Draw us, teach us. Holy Spirit, continue to, to, to move in our lives to create in us more and more the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we go forth from this place to baptize these individuals in the lake, God, the significance of what be, is being represented there would not be lost on any of us. That these individuals are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are new creatures. The old has passed away, and they are new creatures in Christ which is available to all. Lord, I pray as we go through this next week with all the busyness of the week, many will be traveling. There will be much celebrating on the 4th of July. God, I pray you would watch over us, keep us. God, all those people we're going to be around are nothing but opportunities to share the love of Jesus. God, and I pray also in the midst of this turmoil that's going on with this court's decision about marriage, that you would give us words to speak led by your Holy Spirit and that the love of Jesus Christ would cover everything we do and everything we say. 
And Lord, all this would be for your glory. In Jesus' name.